Welcome to season four of the Navit podcast, all about money stories. We all have a unique relationship with money and an equally unique story about how that relationship made us who we are today. This season, we will be asking navigators in our community to share their tales. We hope these stories will help us all learn more about our common human experience and dig deeper into our own financial journeys. Feel free to join the conversation. If you have specific financial questions you would like people to answer, call us and leave a voicemail at 206-405-0182. We will read your questions and have them answered on this season of the podcast. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Today we have Paco de Leon, a woman blazing a path all her own. Balancing her passion for music and having to play the game, she maintained the fire in her soul as she jumped into the corporate wormhole. With the knowledge she gained from her finance degree, a couple bank jobs and financial planning, she had an epiphany. She now takes what she learned on the dark side to get other artists on the right side of the profit line. As the founder of the Hell Yeah Group, she handles the power she's amassed through knowledge responsibly. (laughs) And she does it so awesomely. Hey, Paco. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the season four of the Navit Podcast. We are so excited today to welcome one of our key partners, Paco de Leon from the Hell Yeah Group. She has been someone that we have followed personally for a very long time and learned from. We are so excited to have her on our podcast today and learn her money story. Paco, welcome. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. You know, we Maya was just saying how she uh, found you initially for Navit. So I love Maya. Tell us the story of how you found Paco. Oh, hi, everyone. Um, Yes, I get to give a big shout out to a dear friend of mine who currently lives in Dar in Tanzania. Um, She sent, I think I had met Aaron and we were in conversations of our partnership together. And I reached out to Victoria because she's also a close confidant of mine. And I said, hey, listen, I'm thinking about, um, you know, co-founding this fintech company. any thoughts, any, any points to make? And she, was she like, didn't say no. run. <laughs> yeah, she didn't say run, but she was like, no, but if you guys are really going to focus on financial education, like getting that right, you have to know about Paco. And I was like, Paco, tell me more. And she's like, well, I've been following this wonderful woman for a while now. And she has been my key kind of financial literary resource while, especially while I've been abroad. And at that time she was, it was kind of her first time living on her own. I mean, she had the comfort of the US system. Um, but she was really making her first big money moves abroad and really leaned on Paco as a resource. So Paco, I'm just so thrilled to have you here today. And um, that's, I would, that's so amazing. Yeah. I, I'm so I love to hear these stories where I'm being on the internet, writing to what feels like a black hole, right? Sometimes yeah. I get feedback, and sometimes I don't get feedback. So it's really nice to get the feedback that folks are, are using the work that I'm putting out there. It's true. It's so true. And we're so excited to hear how you built this and, and the the story behind it. So we'd love you just to ha- take a quick um, couple minutes to tell the audience a little bit about your background, and then we can launch into other questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I chose to study finance and economics in college. And I honestly, there was not a lot of rationale behind it because you're like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And they're kind of like, you have a few years to pick. And time ran out and I was like, I don't know, that seems like I'll make money and 
things will be okay. I'll be able to afford a roof over my head and I'll probably get to still like play in my band. So I picked it and um, I got this job as a, my very first job in the financial services industry, quote unquote, was actually a debt collector for Bank of America. So for two years, I sat in a call center and I collected on past due auto loans. And that one lesson taught me so much about how we all feel guilty and guilt and shame and general weirdness about money, right? I'm a stranger calling people saying you're, you're late on your payment. And it just shed so much light on our relationship with money. And I've, that's just stuck with me forever, you know? And it's really that one experience has really colored my, why I do what I do and why I'm motivated to help people. Uh, after college, I went, I worked at a small business consulting and management firm where I learned how to do bookkeeping which my service-based business is a bookkeeping agency. After a few years doing that, I worked as a financial planner where I learned everything about you know, personal finances and how that world works. I felt like my boss who I was working for, he, I felt like he raised this curtain and he was like, look in there, kid. And that's how the world of money works. And over time, sitting at these conference room tables, having these meetings with these important people in Los Angeles who had all this money and all this power, I felt like I'm learning kind of a lot and it feels kind of like a little bit of a lottery ticket that I'm here. Like I didn't go to a great school, but everybody here seems to be really smart working with clients from Harvard and Stanford and they're running, you know, the entertainment industry and I'm getting a front seat. And over time I started to have this feeling of like, I should probably tell people about this, you know, because at nighttime I would go and hang out with all my artist friends, right? Being in a band means I have friends who've studied drums. I have friends who are trying to make it as a painter. And, you know, at work in the daytime, I'm like helping somebody save 50 grand on a tax bill. And at night my friends are like, so what are bonds, dude? And over time, that those two parts of my life just kind of started to converge. And I actually, after that financial planning job, I worked in marijuana consulting briefly. And um, I remember all throughout this time, I kind of felt like my intuition was saying, you don't like to listen to rules and you don't like to be told what to do. You're probably going to be a business owner. But I was like, no, 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 that's scary. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to show up and get my check and call it a day. Uh, and then one of these times when I was working for this guy with the, the marijuana consulting firm, I, I remember telling I had dinner with my wife and I was saying, you know, I think I can make this work. I know it's not my dream, you know, I'm bargaining, right. Selling the job to me. I know it's not my dream, but I think I can make it my own. And the next day he fired me, he fires me and he says, you know what, kid, you're, you're too smart. You promise me this, promise me you won't go and get another office job because you're too smart to do that. And I said, okay, I promise. So I, so from there, I, I signed up for unemployment, thankfully. And then I, every morning I would sit, I got really into my meditation practice. I would sit quietly and I would just wait for the, the message, I guess. And eventually what started bubbling up was like, maybe you can help creatives. Maybe you can serve a creative community. Yes. Why don't you just try to build a service, do financial planning, do consulting, do bookkeeping, and just see how it responds. And that was seven years ago. And it's been an amazing, incredible journey. I just, I got a book deal right as the pandemic was happening with Penguin. And my first book is coming out February 1st. And it's been such a positive response. It's clear and it's very obvious that this is what I'm meant to do, at least right now, for sure, 100%, no 
doubt in my body that this is what I'm meant to do. That's incredible. And when you align with that truth, like things just happen and the kind of next step, I felt that way with Navid all the time. Like the doors are always shut, but every time I check in, I'm like, am I still supposed to be doing this? Like the next door opens and you just go through it and you just keep moving when you're aligned like that. It's very amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm really There's curious. Like a sense of ease, right? Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your body is just like, you know, you know what's right and what's wrong, right? I love that. Totally. I mean, did he fire you because he thought you needed to be fired or because his company was having problems? He like, uh, he wasn't sure whether or not he was going to continue to focus on the industry. He was also the kind of like serial entrepreneur who had his hands in other pots. And yeah. he was doing something where it was like basically an online business. He would capture leads. We would try to sell them. And it was, you know, the, the pot business was at the time the wild, wild west. It still kind of is. Yes. But back yeah. then it was really just whatever you know we would just call the city and be like can we open up a grow dispensary here okay no okay well we'll tell the client and then we give the guy his money back it was slightly shady but um <laughs> welcome to the that, west, i mean like the west coast like three years ago <laughs> totally but it, i will say what he what he really taught me was nobody knows what they're doing everybody's making up making it up as they go and you just gotta sometimes just put it out there shoot your shot and see how the world responds but uh, yeah, he was trying to pivot and so he fired me. And I don't know, it just felt like he was giving me a message that I was ignoring and ignoring and ignoring. And then the universe, I felt like they were like, I- I'm going to just spell it out real clear for you. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So that leads us to really the background. So how did you feel about all these things? So I guess our first question, really, when you start to think about a money story is like, how how did you approach money as a child, like in childhood? How was money kind of taught to you? Or did you have anyone to talk to? Or was it something you guys even talked about at all? We also ask often, like, what was your first money memory to kind of jolt that conversation? But, it, you know, you can take that in different ways. How how did you feel like you approach or you were taught how to approach money when you were young? I can confidently say that I was not taught anything when it comes to how to approach money, uh, which I don't think is an, an uncommon story. The more I talk to people about money, the more I realize that they, you know, they go through their entire childhoods, their entire lives with their parents without ever asking some of these simple questions like, mm-hmm. why do we go to work every day and earn money? Let's just start there, you know, and that would right. probably blow the top off in terms mm-hmm. of conversations. It, it wasn't particularly stressful growing up. You know, I grew up in the 90s which was an incredibly prosperous time in America. And so I think that has a lot to do with the fact that my parents didn't really address it because as they were seeing it, things were just working out, right? My parents didn't graduate college and they were homeowners and they weren't doing anything spectacular. Like now you would have to like have invested in Bitcoin, you know, in 2013. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? And for them, it was kind of like there was a sense of ease. And so I think maybe they thought, you know, well, she'll just go to school and she'll just be like us, but but better and things will go up from here. Was there an expectation that you go to college or like what was the education expectation? Yes, I have so many memories of being a tiny little girl and looking up at my dad and my dad saying, remember, you need to go to college before you get married. Oh, and he really, he really instilled that. And I think it's because, you know, he, he didn't want me to, 
he wanted me to be an independent woman, which is so amazing that he taught me that lesson, you know, and it was really ingrained. So there was definitely the expectation that I would go to college. I do wonder if, if you know, the fact that they didn't go to college, if that really colors their, their desire for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a consistent theme. I feel like Maya, we see that like with yeah. female entrepreneurs, it's often the father in both of our lives, like the father and encouraged us to at least be educated and be independent. Like sometimes people, they talked about money or not, but like there was this like uh, the male figure in our, in our lives. I've talked to so many women that this is true. We're like you, one woman recently told me, she's like, my dad said, you have to go be financially independent when you get divorced because you're going to get divorced. It was like pretty horrible. Oh my God. <laughs> like a little that's, intense. Right. That's traumatizing. Like, right. Misogynistic to its own degree. Like, I, like, okay. yeah, I think he was also yeah. like a, um, he was an estate planning lawyer type. So he had just okay. you know, seen all the drama around that. Yes. It was more him projecting from his experience than actually thinking about her, but, but it's interesting. I wonder if, I wonder if like, you know, the fact that women couldn't have credit cards or like open up their own account, if that colored our mother's, uh, you know, attitudes towards money. And that's why Mm -hmm. our fathers are the ones who are talking to us about money. And I wonder how that's going to change for the next generation. Yeah, I really hope it does. I feel like Aaron and I talk about that missed opportunity in credit, right? I mean, can you imagine just being handed access to your own life, like financial life at 20? I mean, I guess, I guess a lot of us are 25 or whatever it is, but to have all of our, like to put ourselves in our mother's shoes to that degree and to think that like all of our best friends all had the same act, not the same access, but the door was open. I love your, your visual of, you know, kind of going behind the curtain, right? Like the curtain was pulled for that entire generation all at once. And they had never had a financial conversation. Like we can't really fault them now for still not having financial conversations with their peers, you know, X amount of years later. Right. Like I think it's really interesting. And, and Paco, I love, I don't think we've ever had somebody make that right point from the millennial perspective. Um, make that point that, you know, we are products of the really the nineties, which was such a prosperous time in the U S and like, of course our parents weren't worried. Like why would they have been, you know, something would have had to go massively wrong. Um, And so I wonder too, you know, to that degree, like did that affect their approach to financial conversations in the home? I mean, I, I, you know, so few of us have any financial conversations as, as children, but were there any points of, um, inflection there about not just being resourceful for yourself, but um, your access to money? Like, was there any conversation about how to handle it or how to access it? No, there was no conversations about how to access it. If anything, my parents believed that the only access point to money is going to get a quote unquote stable job reliable job, quote unquote, and I say quote unquote, because that's an illusion, right? Stability and any kind of control uh, is unfortunately an illusion, but that's part of the game that we're, or not the game, that's part of the deal being a human on planet Earth, right? Yeah. It's an uncertain existence. Um, but yeah, they, they very much were like, you're, 
the way that you make money is only through a job. I had one aunt. She's my dad's oldest sister. She was the first one to come to the United States and bring everyone. She was massively successful. She was an entrepreneur. She did a home health business that was just killing it in the 90s. And mm -hmm. I feel really lucky to have seen that happen and to have been pulled on along for that ride. So she would take us mm -hmm. on vacation and you know, some of my early childhood memories, she would give me a nice crispy $100 bill. And it was just like, oh, wow, this yeah. is the life, you know? Huge, yes. <laughs> and so I don't know who I would be without having seen that and having had those visceral experiences, you know, traveling and seeing the world and being exposed to, I don't know, sushi at a young age, things like that. And, and it's funny because I can hear my aunts and uncles Sometimes they, you know, they refer to, they're like, oh, you're, you're very much like her because you're an entrepreneur and, you know, you're putting yourself out there in that same way. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to also look at the ways that other people in your life impact how you view money. And even if your parents are, you know, their story is you just get a job and you just show up and you're grateful for what you have. There's other ways that your perspective can be expanded. It's, you know, you have to also, I mean, for sure, one is privilege, but two, with the internet now, we can find people who look like us, who sound like us, who talk yes. like us, who come from similar backgrounds, and we can use them as expanders for our own consciousness, right? We can see, hey, if they did it and they've, you know, overcome certain things, well, how can I try to repeat that pattern? Yes. Yes. I talk about this all the time. I think we'll pause very quickly for the commercial break. I'm learning, Maya. I'm so proud. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Navit podcast. Be sure to visit navitmoney.com slash podcasts to join the conversation, access the show notes and discover other incredible money stories. I can't agree more because we talk all the time about that representation and having people like you and, and the, talking about mothers, like having the feminine narrative now. It's amazing you saw a female entrepreneur that you could emulate in your life. I'm curious about what um, beliefs that you kind of gained or your family had in childhood that you felt like you brought to adulthood. One interesting story I know is that you're an artist, but you chose to go into banking and finance. I read somewhere that it was because you you knew your parents would would approve, right? So like, I'm curious about what you brought from childhood into adulthood and what you've had to relearn, kind of reframe in your own life. Sure. They never explicitly said, don't go to art school, don't study music, but it was implied uh, because they didn't invest in that for me. You know, I, we, I played in bands since I was 15 and I remember rolling up to shows with my raggedy guitar that I found literally in my friend's closet. And she was like, oh, that's my cousin's. You should just take it. And I got it really strong and it was Amazing. dented and crappy. It was crappy. And I remember having to beg my mom to buy an amp and we just like picked one of the crappiest amps because it was affordable. And then I would go to play a show at like 15 and I'm like, wow, you guys have such nice gear. Did your parents buy that for you? That's unfathomable, you know? Um, and I, you know, I don't blame my parents. They, they, I sucked when I first started. Why would, why would they <laughs> think that? You know, they're just like, just here's your starter gear For and fun. whatever. If you're, yeah. You know what I mean? So, but, but those things also colored my 
decision, you know, that they were signaling to me, this is not valuable. This is what you do for fun. This is not something serious. I don't, I did not grow up knowing any artists. I'm trying to think if maybe I've forgotten, but no, everybody in my life, all the adults in my life growing up were very practical and serious. You know, some of my family was working class. They're at working at a plastics company and, you know, delivering newspapers as a side hustle. And so that's what I saw growing up. Art seemed frivolous and it seemed just a lot riskier than something quote unquote practical. And I felt like, I guess at the end of the day, I felt like, you know, my parents came all the way over here to America, right? They came all the way for me to, to be prosperous. So I may as well just get that finance degree. It'll, I'll always have a job is, is mm -hmm. actually what I thought. And that was a belief yeah. that I brought into my adulthood. I'll always be employable because it's a business degree and I'll always work for a business. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other beliefs that I don't think came from my parents, but came from society as I got older and that I had to deprogram myself from believing all the time is that I am inherently deserving um, and the reason why I didn't believe that was because things like the wage gap are a tangible, real way across all of society that, that the world is saying to you, hey, kid, you're just not that valuable compared to others. We would, you know, somebody else is more valuable than you are. And that took a lot of time for me to sit with and to try to understand where this internalized you know, lack of confidence, lack of self-worth came from. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, it's still something I deal with. You know, it's still hard for me to spend money on myself. I still sometimes get that, like, <laughs> the money's in the account. I can afford it. I'll buy it. And I'll still, for one second, just think, like, should, should I have? And then, you know, that's a great time for me to pause and reflect and say, like, of course, yes, you deserve yes. it. You're worth it. The money is there, you know? Yes. And especially as like you were a small business owner and like you do your accounting services, that's all about pricing. And, and I have seen this so many times with people negotiating and under undervaluing what they do. So starting at a low rate and just having such a hard time getting back up. I, I'm sure you coach people about this. Oh, I could only coach people about it after I had to walk through the fire myself. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because when I first started my bookkeeping agency, I co-founded it with a friend of mine who I worked with at the consulting firm. And we were, we were just underpricing ourselves. And I was wondering, why are we having a hard time getting clients? I don't understand. This pricing is quote unquote competitive, right? Um, and then it was only after I started to kind of learn more about pricing that I thought like, oh, okay, we're the $1 oyster. And some people... <laughs> Some yes. people see that as a bargain this is real. This is real. and other people see that as a fuck. No, thank you. <laughs> yes. Please. No, I do not want food poisoning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, so please. I kind of had that moment of reckoning where I'm like, Oh, we're totally the $1 oyster here. Yeah. We need to be the, you know, we need to elevate our service, our offerings, mm -hmm. the way we treat clients, all of that. But we also then also need to elevate our pricing. I mean, as soon as we changed our pricing, as soon as I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot from the hip and just yeah, kind of go for it and see what this next client says, you know, and that pricing felt 
I don't know if out of reach is, but it didn't feel realistic. And I said the number and they were like, yeah, great. And that just blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, you're willing to pay that? Of course you're willing to pay. And so then that, you know, leads you down another path of unpacking, like, why did it take me so long? And what what am I, you know, so it's a, being an entrepreneur is so fulfilling. I'm sure you guys real, you know, you agree. It's so fulfilling because you get to confront yourself. You get to face Mm -hmm. yourself. It's a place where you get to learn about who you are and and how you interact with the world. I think I very much agree. That you just said that. So I mean, just very quickly, I feel like we feel that way. And you know, when we were raising our seed round and we went out, it's like a pretty modest sum. I I feel like that was part of the resistance. People were like, "You're only raising one, one and a half, whatever it was." And wow. like, it took a long time, to- a lot of conversations for somebody to finally like flat out say that to us. And wow. it, by that point, it was like too late. But <laughs> we were like, well, that's not happening next time. Right. <laughs> but it's really hard because, you know, in our like, like to your point, when you when you asked for that sum and they were like, yeah, great. In my mind, that makes me think, oh, she could have probably gone 100 or 200 more. You know, like, are we, is that even undervalued? Like, it's so hard yeah. to know what the world's going to give us back until we try. And and someone someone that from early, like early days of Navit was like the worst. They told me something that resonated and I've tried to keep it. It's still hard. It's so hard. But they basically said the worst they can say is no. Like, what's the problem? Like you say, you know, some, but anyways, I, I think it's a, it's such a good lesson in self-esteem. We talk a lot about linking worth and self-esteem to your confidence when you navigate money, because you do, we do deserve abundance in our lives and we can manifest that as we kind of go through it. I'm curious Absolutely. about what the biggest money lesson you've learned in adulthood is. Is that it? Or is there, have you learned other things as you kind of navigated this world? That is a big one right? Worthiness, self-worth, self-confidence, and the interconnectedness of all those things. Um, From a more practical perspective, I mean, learning about compounding interest and just compounding in general, you know, put money into the stock market, you lay down all day long, and then you have more money. That, to me, blew my (laughs) mind. Um, And (laughs) it's nonsensical it's insanity if you think about it and everybody is so serious in the industry too they're just like yeah pe ratios or whatever i'm like you guys this is so crazy this is alchemy uh but okay i'm on board you guys that's fine i'm on board with this i mean so that and then viewing like my daily habits and entrepreneurship and writing a book and any sort of achievement that you want to have, right? I view it through this lens now of compounding because what I realize is oftentimes, as long as you stick to a process and you're consistent about your process, you're consistent about running it, you're consistent about showing up, the effort that you need to put into it will be less than the return that you get out of it. And that's one thing I've learned all about life. You know, it's like you show up and you write for an hour a day And over time, it's less painful, it's less painful, it's less painful. And not only that, like the return that you get on that one hour investment every day is just incomparable, you know, to the time that you put in. Yeah. We talk about five minutes a day in our app. If you do some mindset, you check your stress level, swipe your bumble, bumble swipe your your transactions, feel good, feel bad about the transactions. 
and maybe read an article or look at how look at a quiz, like you will incrementally grow your financial confidence because you are paying attention to your finances. You're checking in on yourself and you're seeing how other people navigate the world. Maya talks a lot about Maya. You talk a lot about habits. I love habits because I'm a fitness fanatic. So I, you know, it, it's a great compounding interest essentially applies to fitness habits too, right? It's like you spend a little bit, you know, in day one, maybe you spend 10 minutes on like a 10 minute stretching routine, right? And then you add two minutes and then you add two minutes and then you add two minutes. But when you look back at it, you, yeah, maybe you've maxed an hour of your workout, which is plenty every day or, you know, a few days a week, but you've built up such a, you know, mental and physical resilience to your own health, right? Your own healthcare, like you've prevented yourself from illness by literally just showing up and doing something for yourself for a few minutes a day that's so freaking cool in my mind so, it's so powerful. i love it i love it wait i need to know what's your sport of choice oh. well i am in sun valley idaho now full-time um everybody else can't see this but Paco, i'll show you on the on i was the wondering why your lighting was amazing is because snow is radiating <laughs> all the snow yeah <laughs> Yes, yeah, for all of you listening out there, I look stunning right now. You do, you do. She's wearing a nice sweater, the color of your sweater works. Yeah, the, the sweater helps. Thanks, Aaron. Um, but yes, I live in Sun Valley, Idaho, so I actually skate ski, um, and I do that you know, somewhat competitively, and, and my uh, my athletic journey was really tennis, so I played tennis as a kid. Nice. I was not into team, like, combative sports. I don't like any hit. I don't like armpits in my face that's not a thing really those really? are my sports that's what i <laughs> what do you do erin sorry i know we're taking this a little no, off track no, but I'm I'm curious. yeah well now i now my poor maya has heard this a million times but now because i am a mother and because of covid and because i also live in a really rainy climate aka seattle I, I am a Peloton girl. Like I do, I love the bike and all the kind of nice. weight stuff. But as a child, I was, you know, tennis, uh, not tennis, sorry, volleyball, basketball, and softball. The only okay. team sports. Individual didn't exist. It's a big joke. What about she's you? Also like, she's like 5'2". So place oh, like the smallest kid in the team <laughs> in those three dynamics. I was the point guard. I was the setter. I was like the organizer. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all about dynamics, you know? And I know I look incredibly tall on camera, but I'm actually only five even. <gasps> Amazing. We can be friends. <laughs> I'm around yes. all these giants like that, like her and like half yeah. of the team of giants. So like, our next won't hurt when we talk to each other. It'll be great. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> we can sequester you two away while the rest of us can be. <laughs> exactly. Well, oh, not today. Right. I want to ask you about your sports habit, but let me go back to money. <laughs> um, <laughs> as an entrepreneur and as adulthood, I guess now I'm I'm curious about what kind of is your approach to money now as you manage businesses and uh, multiple businesses and kind of what inspired you around that? Hmm. I mean, I definitely try to take it day by day. And for me, I think I am both incredibly practical when it comes to money. I think I have a good balance of being risk averse because I came up in financial planning in 2010, which was right when we were seeing the impacts of the housing crisis, right? We were seeing, I was having really uncomfortable conversations with clients about turning the keys in and going into foreclosure. And so I do have some, you know, aversity to risk, but I'm an entrepreneur, which means I inherently, obviously, clearly love risk. So <laughs> I try to balance that out. Um, but yeah, so I think I'm a, I think I'm a perfect mix of, of 
of being very practical and pragmatic, but also understanding that there is so much human emotion involved in our decisions, right? You guys talk about the nervous system all the time. When I started to uncover these things, because I wondered, I was wondering if, why, why are people not acting in their best interest when they're seemingly smart and capable and they have the money? You know, why are they still overspending? Why are they not investing? What's going on? And the more I dug, the more I looked into trauma and the more I looked into how our narratives around money and our beliefs around money and how we think it works in the world, all of that impacts what you're practically able to do. So what I realized is the approach is you first have to deal with your emotions, right? Even if we're all, we're not, we're not all rational investors, right? That's the flaw in the, in the economic thinking. We first have to deal with our emotional selves, regulate mm -hmm. it, honor those emotions, heal what we can heal. And then only can we really make decisions that are rooted in cognition and that are rational. You are preaching yeah. our language. We're so, <laughs> yes. Which is why we started an app that tried to connect yeah. your stress levels and your triggers around money to your actual money management. It's definitely, a. it's been an interesting thing for us to kind of marry health and finances because health doesn't really know finance of finest they don't really know health right so it's but it's been such a joy to see people kind of understand that like kind of the light bulb goes on of like oh yeah this is what i've been looking for i like i didn't know what my stressors were but that making those connections and understanding my narrative like that is the the kind of core problem that i have and now mm -hmm. you start to switch those and within a month of we do financial coaching within a month if you start for someone that needs that kind of switch they're changing their entire narrative. Like you can see people completely altering their credit scores, their debt management, like everything. Once that kind of switch of like, oh, wait, let me deal with my emotions around this. I understand it. I'm reframing. And now like, wait, I can do this. This is just, this money does what I tell it to do. You know, like it's not Absolutely. talking back. I think one of the biggest hurdles that we all have to overcome as a society and even with, a, you know, and making an app like this is that on a larger level, it's not okay to talk about money. I think if it were okay to talk about money, these things would be bubbling up more. People would be saying like, that's kind of weird how you think that, dude. Maybe you maybe think about it like this or why do you think you think that about money? Like there historically, it has been taboo to talk about money. And I think if more people get comfortable having those conversations, then then and only then will we be more comfortable going to the painful parts or, you know, like going to the root of some of these issues. Absolutely. That's what we're, I'm, that's why we're great partners because we both, we were trying to push that narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, Maya, do you want to ask her our final question about the next big money move? Well, you've teamed me up perfectly. <laughs> <I think laughs> <so. laughs> but Paco, yeah, you are coming out with a book, which is so exciting and so impressive. February 1st, um, we will add the link to the show notes when, when we have that link out there. We cannot wait to read. Um, but what is the next money move? Like, where do you go after you're an accomplished published author? Right. Do you just like <laughs> sit back and like let that compound interest just like rake in and some passive vehicles or do you like do the next best thing? You definitely pause and have like a few pina coladas, just yeah. really take it all in, <laughs> you know, appreciate the I think summit. You're to, I think you're supposed to do that before the book tour. So I think you have to do that right now. Oh, okay. Like, do you right have now. One okay. Thank right you. Right yeah. 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 Uh, you know, uh, 
I, I'm going to a nice dinner after this, so I'll, it'll happen. You know, I'll, I'll send you a selfie. How does that sound? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I would love one. <laughs> um, in terms of next big money moves, I think, you know, to to be all about what I said I was all about, I think there's really two things. I On the practical side, I want to take my bookkeeping agency to the next level. I want to hire an operations person, get the operations nice and tidy, and really go after that next level of clientele. Um, mm -hmm. I hope to be running a million-dollar agency in the very near future. And I know I have to bring on excellent talent to do that. So that's what I'm looking at in, in terms of a big money move. And the other thing that is really in concert with that is I'm just digging deeper into my subconscious and looking at ways that I need to heal and feel like I am not just worthy, but deserving of an abundant, incredible, safe, secure life. It's so interesting to me that it's an ongoing process. Like it sounds like you acknowledge this and have been working on it over a long period of time and it it's like doesn't go away. I think I I have equally kind of gone down that that path and I think I at the beginning I felt like oh like I can solve like let me just solve this problem. Like it's a one off, right? But no, it's mm -hmm. like this continual belief system that has to be challenged and kind of integrated and, and, and it's really a never ending process of figuring out your worth. Yeah. <laughs> I, in the book, one of the concepts that I talk about a lot is new level, new devil. And so, you know, the breakthroughs that you had to have, the, the, the beliefs that you had to confront and rewrite the things you had to do to get from one level to the next level, they, it might, they're going to be different, you know, getting from, undercharging to charging a good amount is really different to, you know, charging an average amount to running a million dollar business. You have to go through different breakthroughs and you're faced with new challenges. And I say specifically subconscious because I feel like I do a really good job of consciously knowing all the ways that I'm weird or fucked up about money. I consciously know, but what's underneath the surface that, what are my unknown unknowns? That's really what I'm working towards. Uh, how can I heal? How can I find my unknown unknowns and how can I heal them? It's amazing. And that's all in your book? Yeah, I talk about the new level, new double concept. And yeah, I talk about how you need to confront the subconscious, unconscious things and, you know, everything that's just below the surface. I talk about how the, the mind is a dark attic full of things we're afraid of. And oftentimes we just need to shine a light on them. And I think one really important point that I want to leave you guys with that's also in the book is is so much money stuff is is brings feelings of guilt and shame yes. and we've been taught that bad feelings are bad and i think really where the consciousness is moving towards is this concept that we need to embrace the negative aspects of of who we are right shame and guilt come from a rejection of part of you that you've learned mm -hmm. uh, from society, from your parents, your upbringing. As soon as you can start to realize that and integrate these parts of you and love that part of you and say, hey, this part of you that I was ashamed of, let's have some cake and hang out. Yeah. And like, let me just get to know you, come to the table and you're safe yeah. and I accept you. That's when real, real change happens because you are, you are being your whole self in a way that you weren't before. 
I mean, I'm getting teary as Maya always jokes that I'm the crying, I'm the one that cries <laughs> because, you know, in my world, like I, as a kind of driving type A personality, though Maya has equally a more driving personality than I do, um, you want to fix it. Like I, you know, you sit with that shame and that guilt. It's like, okay, I'm going to get rid of you. But like the way you're framing that of just like accepting it and loving it and letting it exist, it kind of helps it dissipate because you're not fighting it, right? And you're, and you are, it comes from someplace. I, I really love the way you're doing that. I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> I can't wait for everyone to read my book. Yes, it's so exciting. So we're going to give you a chance to tell everyone where to find it, but I'm going to do a quick, um, the final, like quick takes. Okay. So you ready? So sure. The questions are like, would you rather? Okay. You're ready. Okay. I'm nervous. You can do it. Light, it's lighthearted so, stuff yeah, before the end. Fun yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Would you rather rent or buy? Rent. Okay. Uh, cook in or eat out? Eat out. Okay. Coffee in or coffee at a coffee shop? Coffee in. Uh-huh. Netflix or Hulu? Hulu. Ooh, good. I like it. Um <laughs> Okay, you're an LA girl, so I'll do this one. Lakers versus Knicks. Lakers all day, baby. Yeah, you can't like you can't even. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay, final one. This is a money one. Would you rather have a million dollars or fifty million dollars with a mime? You know, like those guys that don't speak, but yeah, permanently following you. <laughs> I will. I would take the mime for way less money because what a story <gasps> that would be. I'd make friends everywhere <laughs> or maybe repel True. people, whatever. It would be, it would be great it no matter what. Yes. It would be great press for the book. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's and you know, like, good press. <laughs> in LA, you have like, right. Yeah. But you know, like in certain parts of like, everybody has like a fixture of a person in their town, right? Like we, for a while we had this guy who would push chihuahuas in a, in a stroller and he would always wear like a pink, top and a pink cowboy hat right and it's always like there's that guy running walking down sunset i'll be mime lady they'll be like have you seen this lady yes. she's she's yes. always got a mime with her it's gnarly but I, d I don't hate it but i don't love it it's it's amazing is what it is it could be an art but project. she's got 50 million dollars so she's like doing it in a maserati you know like right. exactly <laughs> That's amazing. And or like you're on your with your uh, band, you know, it's just the mimes just there as you're performing. I love it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Love A it. New element. Yes. Well, Paco, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your money story and also to talk about your what how you approach finances and, and your future with your book. So could you tell people where they can find you and also more importantly, where they can find your book? Absolutely. You can find me on the World Wide Web at thehellyeahgroup.com. On Instagram, my handle is at thehellyeahgroup. And you can find Finance for the People anywhere you get books. Amazon, Bookshop, anywhere. Quick anecdote. Why was it hell yeah? That's a good story. I, I, I was riding my bike one day and I thought... Uh, you're going to start this company and you know, what are you going to do? And I was like, you should just name it something stupid and funny because that's going to attract the people that you want. And I was just riding my bike and it was just like, you should call it hell yeah bookkeeping in the hell yeah group. That would be hilarious. And so I did it. I mean, my nickname Paco was also like this hilarious joke that I thought I, I thought I was being really funny when I was 14. 
playing a joke on my Spanish teacher. She told me I couldn't choose a boy's name. And now I'm like 36 years old. Literally my book says Paco on it. So <laughs> I just, I just take things to the extreme. You know, I just, I take jokes to the extreme. So I didn't know that that was, that that's a nickname. Yeah. I, my parents, I don't, you know, they're kind of like, she's going to do what she's going to do, but I find it to be hilarious. I mean, it just stuck. Like I walked around and I introduced myself after that class when my teacher was like, you can't have a boy's name. I walked around and I introduced myself to everybody in the freshman class. I said, hi, my name is Paco. Just not thinking, just being a, a smart ass 14 year old. And then like three days later, I'm like walking down the halls and people are just like, Paco, Paco. And I was like, oh, okay. Here that we was are. the repercussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actions have consequences. That escalated <laughs> quickly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is incredible. Well, good to know that that, do you want to tell your real name? Like what's your legal name? Yeah. Yeah. So you know how you were like struggling with saying De Leon without a French uh, accent. Yeah. I have often when, you know, my, my government name is Nicole De Leon. So when people don't see me, like they see my name, they read my name, they're calling me. They're like, are you French? And I was like, I wish I was French, man. I would, <laughs> that's amazing. But no, I'm not. Sorry. The name just is confusing. <laughs> amazing. Nicole is very different than Paco. So it's beautiful all around. <laughs> Very different. Yep, sure is. Well, thank you again, Paco, for being on our podcast. And we are so grateful you took the time. And we'd love to have you back sometime to tell more money stories. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to chatting with you guys again soon. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Thanks for listening to the Nabbit Podcast, where we share money stories. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe and share this episode with your friends. See you on the next episode.